Republicans in North Carolina say they'll override their governor's veto of a 12-week abortion ban in the state. It's Monday, May 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Turkey's presidential election appears to be heading for a runoff. Also this hour, Congress is looking at how to regulate artificial intelligence as the technology rapidly advances. Our goal is to maximize the good that can come of it, but minimize the bad that can come of it. But to do it is more easier said than done. And a new NPR series explores why nearly 1,000 people in the U.S. die each day from diet-related diseases. The great tragedy is that despite having here in the U.S. the most sophisticated healthcare system in the world, we as a nation are not getting healthier. Celtics keep their championship hopes alive, sunny in upper 70s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Congressional and White House staff held high-level talks over the weekend on resolving the debt ceiling crisis. President Biden says he thinks he'll meet again with top congressional leaders tomorrow at the White House. But NPR's Tamara Keith reports that meeting has not yet been officially announced. The leaders had been scheduled to meet Friday, but the meeting was canceled so staff-level talks could continue, and they did. President Biden stopping on a Sunday bike ride to talk to the press didn't want to share details. What I've learned a long time ago, and you know as well as I do, is never as good to characterize a negotiation in the middle of a negotiation. But I really think there's a desire on their part as well as ours to reach agreement. I think we'll be able to do it. Biden is set to leave Wednesday for a meeting of the leaders of the world's top economies in Hiroshima, Japan. He said he still plans to go, at least as of now. Tamara Keith, NPR News. An official with Mexico's immigration agency says migrants from Central America and other nations continue to arrive at a temporary shelter in Matamoros. That city is across the border from Brownsville, Texas. From Texas Public Radio, Stefania Corpi has more. For months, migrants stayed at a makeshift camp that emerged last November in Matamoros, just across the border from Brownsville, Texas. Mexican officials say that the first few tents occupied 200 yards of a sidewalk next to the border crossing. Now the line extends for a little more than a half a mile. The current agreement that allows only 50 migrants in per day means it could take months for the camp of over 5,000 people to empty. In the meantime, hundreds continue to arrive. Migrants have to stay in an official shelter to have the opportunity to cross under the local agreement. But most shelters don't have the capacity to house the large numbers of migrants that show up every day. I'm Stefania Corpi in Matamoros. Flood watches are posted for Oklahoma City and central parts of that state this morning. Heavy rain is falling on the area. Farther north, flash flooding over the weekend inundated St. Louis. In far southern Texas, one person was killed and 10 others hospitalized when a tornado smashed through the community of Laguna Heights over the weekend. Dozens of homes were damaged. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in the United Kingdom today. He's meeting British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Zelensky is in quest of more support for his country to resist Russia's invasion. Today, he thanked Britain for its continued military aid. We'll discuss very important issues, urgent uh, support for Ukraine and security. I think not only for Ukraine, it's important for all the Europe. Zelensky has been on a whirlwind tour of European capitals over the past several days. He's met with the leaders of France, Germany and Italy. And Zelensky went to the Vatican for a meeting with Pope Francis. You're listening to NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu plans to submit her redistricting map today. Last week, a federal judge threw out a previously approved electoral map, saying it likely relied too heavily on race in redistricting. Among other changes, the new map unites neighborhoods in Dorchester. The plan will need approval by the Boston City Council before it can move forward. Lawmakers on Beacon Hill are considering a plan to add eight more judges to the state's probate and family court. That court handles divorce and custody issues, among others, and currently employs 51 judges. Court officials say justices are struggling to keep up with current caseloads. The $1.5 million plan is part of both chambers' budget proposals. If approved, the Boston Globe reports it would be the largest expansion of the state's judicial bench in decades. Authorities are still searching for a four-year-old boy from South Boston who went missing on Castle Island last night. Emergency officials say they're searching the island and the water around it for the boy. Massachusetts State Police, Boston Police and Fire, and the U.S. Coast Guard are all involved in the search. Home sales in Massachusetts are on the decline. Despite that, would-be buyers are still facing a lot of competition when they make offers. WBUR's Jonathan Kane has more on new data out this morning. The Massachusetts Association of Realtors says 2,600 single-family homes sold last month. That's down 24 percent from a year ago. It turns out fewer people were selling. New listings were down nearly 30 percent from last year. Association President David McCarthy says that's keeping home prices high. A concern we should have for our Commonwealth is the affordability and businesses wanting to come here and or stay here if they can't get employees to be able to find good housing at good prices. The median home selling price last month was $588,000, down three-tenths of one percent from last year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jonathan Kane. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. The Celtics' championship dreams are alive and well. The team is advancing to the NBA Eastern Conference Finals thanks to a big win against Philly in Game 7 last night. Final score was one. 12 to 88. The Red Sox fell to the St. Louis Cardinals last night by eight runs. They play at home again tonight, this time against the Seattle Mariners. Sunny today with some gusty winds. Temperatures will rise to the upper 70s. Tonight, some clouds roll in and temperatures cool down to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and warmer. Expect a high around 82 degrees. It'll still be pretty windy. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston at 707. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include BritBox with the new season of Grace based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original mysteries, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. The final votes are still being counted in Turkey's closely watched presidential election, but it looks like it's heading for a runoff between President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his main opponent, Kemal Kilic Darolu. 
One thing is for certain, though, whoever wins will define Turkey's role at a vital time for the NATO alliance. Now, so far, none of the candidates were able to get 50 percent of the total votes to win outright. Erdogan told his supporters that he could still win, but would accept a runoff vote if necessary. After two decades in power, he's facing his toughest challenge yet. His rival has been dubbed Turkey's Gandhi, and he's promising big changes, including closer ties with the West. NPR's Peter Kenyon joins us now from Istanbul. Good morning, Peter. Hi, Leila. So, Peter, was this extremely close race and lack of a clear result expected? Well, it was a surprise, I'd say, to some pundits and opposition party supporters, certainly. They were convinced that after 20 years in power, voters were getting tired of Erdogan. Now, this is a politician who was vilified for a sluggish response to a deadly earthquake in southern Turkey just a few months ago, and he's been presiding over an ailing economy. And yet, once again, he seems to have reached beyond his core base of supporters and attracted enough votes to, apparently at least, avoid losing, if not win outright. We may know more after the final votes are tallied. Okay, so Erdogan surprised those who predicted he was finished and made a strong showing despite the economic situation and people's anger over the earthquake response. How did he do it? Well, some of it's being attributed to Erdogan's political skills, which are pretty well known here at least. He's a strong orator. Uh, Many voters say he projects a strong image. They like that. They say he makes world powers pay more attention to Turkey than they might otherwise. Uh, Also, there has been concern in some quarters that the opposition party that Kilic Durolu leads has a kind of a history of losing to Erdogan's ruling party. Uh, These results certainly aren't likely to change that perception. Now, if Erdogan does manage to pull out a victory and win another five years in power, what are the foreign policy implications here, especially when it comes to Turkey's relationship with the U.S. and other NATO allies? Yes, well, exactly. Another Erdogan term would likely continue the contentious relations Turkey's had with its NATO allies Mm. and the West in general. Uh, He's resisted NATO's attempts to add Sweden and Finland to the alliance. Uh, He did eventually agree to support Finland's bid. Sweden is still waiting uh, as Erdogan demands concessions from Stockholm that they say they can't provide. Turkey's also moved closer to Russia under Erdogan, and that does concern the West. Turkey didn't join other nations in sanctioning Moscow after it invaded Ukraine, for instance and it refused to give up missiles it acquired from Russia. Turkey also has expanded its influence in many places, Asia, Africa, the Middle East. So the results of this election are being watched closely in a number of capitals. And what's next? It looks like this is going to a runoff, but that's not official yet, right? That's correct. Uh, Once all the votes are counted, and that could happen as early as later today, it will be up to the election authorities to declare what comes next. If, as expected, neither Erdogan nor Kilic Durolu gets more than 50 percent of the vote, they should square off again in another nationwide vote on May 28th. Then the question becomes, what happens to the votes that were being cast for the two other candidates that were in the race? Meanwhile, voters are watching to see what comes next. NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Leila. President Biden and congressional leaders are set to meet tomorrow over the debt ceiling. A possible default is about two weeks away, and Biden calls that prospect catastrophic. Our economy would fall into a significant recession. It would devastate retirement accounts, increase borrowing costs. According to Moody's, nearly 8 million Americans would lose their jobs. Devastate retirement accounts. We wanted to zoom in on that part. So we called Joel Dixon. He's the global head of advice methodology at the investment firm Vanguard. Joel, what does one thing have to do with the other, the ability to pay the nation's debts and retirement accounts? Well, that that question uh, has really been what we've been hearing, too, directly from our clients. Um, you know, the, the relationship of uh, credit, Uh, the ability for the U.S. government to finance its own investments and for their then 
investors and businesses, their financing costs and their ability to invest um, is at risk or at in question with um, you know the debt uh, crisis uh, looming. So but, but why, investors Joel? I mean, should definitely- everything I put away is that is that all of a sudden going to be used to pay for something else? Or I mean, what, what am I? What no, am I doing not, here? not in that not in that form. Okay. Uh, I think what what is is certain is going to be. Uh, that there is going to be increased market volatility as we get closer and closer to the the debt ceiling and raising the debt limit, and certainly in the event of a default. But whether that volatility actually manifests itself in lower or higher returns at any given point in time is really not under an investor's control and is really, really hard to predict. So how does your firm, uh, a firm like yours, prepare to protect its customers? Yeah, so there are a number of ways. One is in just kind of reminding investors to think about the long-term perspective. Most retirement savings is about saving over the long term. And shorter-term market events like a temporary, what we would expect to be a temporary um, you know, blip, if you will, in the debt uh, issues, um, likely when you zoom out does not have a significant longer-term effect on retirement savings. Not to say there wouldn't be disruption. Uh, There certainly would be because investors should definitely be prepared for potentially significant volatility as we get closer to the deadline. So say if you're in your 50s and you're looking to retire, say, in 10 or 15 years, you got to kind of keep the long game in mind. Absolutely. I mean, the best way for uh, investors to achieve their own success is by the focusing on the things that they can control, saving regularly, keeping costs and taxes from eating away at your nest egg, and knowing what you need to meet your goals. Sticking to that plan and controlling what you can is the best way for success. When it oh. talk about investing, mm-hmm. the markets, market returns, What's happening in the political environment is not really under an investor's control. And so there it's about not putting all of your eggs in one basket so that you're able to withstand many possible outcomes because we don't know or can't control what happens there. But what if I was planning on retiring this year? After working a lifetime, Joel, I'm planning on retiring this year. What do I do? So that's where I do think there are some some other issues that you need to think through of um, you know, there might be some cash flow type of concerns that arise because a lot of government payments uh, that may get delayed if there were a default and, and so forth are, are, are affecting kind of the cash flow that retirees or even more broadly investors generally might be receiving. It's their income that they may be used to be spending in the current environment. And that's where we talk about the importance about preparing for the unexpected. You think about things like having rainy day funds or backup plans. Joel, regrettably, I'm going to have to leave it right there. Joel Dixon at the investment firm Vanguard. Joel, thanks. Thanks, A. Rules for AI are on lawmaker agendas this week. House members talk over dinner tonight with the CEO of OpenAI, which developed the chatbot ChatGPT. And the Senate opens a hearing tomorrow. But NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales tells us Congress has never been especially bold about regulating emerging tech. For the past several weeks, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has met with dozens of experts in artificial intelligence to craft groundbreaking legislation to install safeguards. Our goal is to maximize the good that can come of it, and there can be tremendous good, but minimize the bad that can come of it, tremendous bad. But to do it is more easier said than done. 
But as Schumer works to build a bipartisan consensus behind his legislative framework, he faces an uphill battle in a bitterly divided Congress. It's a very difficult issue, A, because it's moving so quickly, and B, because it's so vast and changing so quickly. Congress has struggled to regulate emerging technology. It missed critical windows to install guardrails for the Internet and social media. Now it faces the equivalent of trying to put in brakes for a runaway train. AI or automated decision-making technologies are advancing at breakneck speed. And there is this AI race, yet the regulations are not keeping pace. That's law professor Ifoma Ajunwa, who co-founded an AI research program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Ajunwa says there are not enough experts in both computer science and law on Capitol Hill, and that makes AI lawmaking all the more challenging. I've got to get educated. That's Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley. He's figured largely in past partisan fights over a variety of issues, but he's intrigued by Schumer's plans. Hawley is a top Republican on a Senate Judiciary subpanel that will hold a hearing on AI oversight options tomorrow. For me right now, the, the power of AI to influence elections is a huge concern. So I think we've got to figure out what is the threat level there and then what, what can we reasonably do about it. Across the Capitol, California Democrat Ted Lieu will co-lead a bipartisan dinner tonight with the head of ChatGPT, the AI chatbot. Earlier this year, Lou introduced a resolution written by ChatGPT, a first for Congress. Yes, you heard that right. Proposed federal legislation written by artificial intelligence. You have all sorts of harms in the future that we don't even know about. And so I think Congress should step up and start looking at ways to regulate artificial intelligence. Professor Ajunwa, who recently wrote a book on the influence of tech on the modern workplace, worries about AI's privacy issues. The way the internet developed, unfortunately, is the same way that AI is developing. We're not asking, should we? We're not asking, what's the impact on the little guy, on the disadvantaged? We're just asking, is this efficacious? Is this profitable for some people? Ajunwa says a late start in the U.S. to craft AI laws while countries such as the European Union are years ahead means a best bet for regulation may be quicker executive action through the White House. Still Schumer, who's back in his Senate office, remains undeterred. Look, it's probably the most important issue facing our country, our families, and humanity in the next hundred years. And if the struggle to regulate the Internet and other emerging tech mirrors efforts to put in guardrails for AI, this debate could play out in the U.S. for years to come. Claudia Rizales, NBR News, The Capitol. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in three minutes on Morning Edition, aid workers in Chad are scrambling to find basic necessities for thousands of refugees fleeing es escalating violence in Sudan. It's 719. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. And Boston Ballet School's Next Generation, a showcase of student talent and the best Boston arts education, Citizens Bank Opera House this Friday. BostonBallet.org. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. Sunny today with a high near 78, partly cloudy tonight with a low around 54. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and temperatures warm up to a high near 82. Mostly sunny and back down to the low 60s on Wednesday. Right now, it's 53 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike protection that powers you. And from Angie, Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel. And I'm Martinez. As Sudan enters its fifth week of conflict, there is no sign to an end to the violence. An agreement to open up a humanitarian corridor has not held and the fighting has escalated. Thousands of people have crossed in the neighboring Chad. NPR Africa correspondent Emmanuel Akinwotu sent us this postcard. I'm here in Fachana. That's a remote town near the border with Sudan. And I've been here with UN agencies and other aid groups who are rapidly trying to support the fast-growing numbers of refugees who've been crossing over the border into Chad. I've been traveling alongside NGOs and trucks of aid supplies, driving for hours through difficult remote routes to the border, escorted by Chadian soldiers. My name is Eugene Bian. Um, I'm a spokesperson for UNHCR, UN Refugee Agency. The water is so urgently needed, as well as the shelter. And everyone at the moment that they're sheltering under tree, just avoid the sun and are hot, but you can imagine they just bring anything they can, the branch, uh, and then uh, just uh, covering themselves with scarf. Aid workers are rapidly trying to monitor and provide support at about 14 camps, which already existed near the border with Sudan, and new ones that are now forming. What worries UNHCR the most that the raining season is coming. The raining season will cause more difficulty for humanitarian agencies to bring aid. About 60,000 Sudanese people have fled here to Chad in the last month, 
About half of that number have arrived in the last week alone. We heard of cases of children coming by themselves even. This is indeed the children's crisis because you see thousands and thousands of children and also the thousands of thousands of orphans coming by themselves. It's not their first time of a displacement. The speed of the refugees crossing this porous border tells you something about just how intense this conflict has been in Darfur. That's where they fled from and that's the site of the devastating war 20 years ago which has shaped that region up until now. That was NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reporting from Chad. So this week, NPR is launching an ongoing series of stories called Living Better, How Americans Can Take Back Their Health. Americans rank poorly on many health outcomes compared to other nations, and things only got worse during the pandemic. So what can be done about it? NPR's Allison Aubrey joins us to talk about the project. Good morning. Good morning. So give us a preview of the series. Why this focus now? You know, you might remember how many times my colleagues and I came on this program during the pandemic with the COVID death count, a thousand deaths a day, 2000 deaths a day, and everyone was horrified. Well, the reality is the U.S. has a similar death toll from preventable diseases. Nearly a thousand deaths a day are linked to diet related disease, heart disease, complications from type 2 diabetes, liver disease. Now, these deaths are not as dramatic, but I think the great tragedy is that despite having here in the U.S. the most sophisticated healthcare system in the world, great doctors, top-notch hospitals, lots of medical breakthroughs, we as a nation are not getting healthier. I mean, just hearing that number, a thousand deaths a day from diet-related diseases, if I had heard you say that every day for months, it really impacts you. When you put it that way, it does sound awful. So where do we start to turn it around? Well, we start by recognizing who is falling behind. It's not everyone equally. If you take a fairly wealthy zip code, let's say Princeton, New Jersey, that's 08542, people who live there can expect to live into their late 80s or 90 years old. But not too far away in Camden, average life expectancy is lower, about 74 years. That's a big difference. So where you live influences how long you live. So it's not necessarily access to a doctor as much as access to a safe place to live and resources. Absolutely. So we want to tell some stories of hope. Despite these challenges, there are communities coming together to prioritize health. We plan to visit Muskegon, Michigan, where they are scaling up evidence-based programs such as the Diabetes Prevention Program. There's lots of data to show that this disease can be prevented or reversed with healthy eating and exercise. And the YMCA in Muskegon is showing that a community approach to diabetes prevention can be less expensive compared to one-on-one counseling and can also help bring people together. Mm. And community programs, as you point out, are important. What about doctors and the healthcare system? I think one of the criticisms of our system is that it's not so much health care as it is disease care. You know, mm. we wait for people to get sick and then try to fix them with surgeries and drugs, which of course can help, but it's very expensive. At a time when the U.S. spends about $4 trillion a year on health care each year, only 4 or 5% of that is directed toward public health and prevention. Wait, what? Out of $4 trillion, only 4 to 5% is about the prevention that stops us going to the hospitals? Yes, single digits. So then when it comes to prevention, are there things that people can just do for themselves? Absolutely. I mean, our big levers are what we eat, how much we sleep, how we manage stress, 
Do we make time for exercise, movement, uh, for socializing with friends? I think it's not always easy to make the healthiest choices. Earlier this week, I was at Starbucks with my daughter and she was eyeing the cake pop and a pink drink. And I said something like, oh, that's more sugar than you should have in a day. And she just gave me this side eye. She kind of <laughs> shrugged. She said, mom, like everyone eats this kind of stuff. So here I am feeling like the bad guy <laughs> because everywhere you look, there's sugary and salty, ultra processed foods. It can be kind of frustrating. Right. And that's if you have the choice to actually get to a place that has healthy, fresh food. That's right. So one of the things we want to do in this series, Layla, is to look around. We're going to look around in Paris, California, for example, where supermarkets have been told they must swap out candy and junk food for healthier items in the checkout lines just to see how small tweaks, policy changes can help nudge people to healthier choices. Thanks, Allison. I'm looking forward to hearing this. Thanks, Layla. You can hear more Living Better stories this Wednesday on Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. This is NPR News. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, President Biden travels to the G7 summit this week. It's being held in Hiroshima, Japan, a location that's being seen as symbolic of the rising nuclear tensions around the world. It's 729. A quick reminder that the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause and even rewind. That's the WBUR app in your app store today. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. And the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's president is in London today for talks with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. As Villa Marx reports, the UK is the latest European stop for Volodymyr Zelensky as he seeks to bolster military aid from the West. Britain announced it would supply hundreds of long-range attack drones and air defense missiles to Kiev just days after announcing delivery of other longer-range projectiles. Zelensky said he'd meet his, quote, friend Sunak for what he called substantive negotiations, part of a days-long effort to increase European military aid with meetings in Italy, Germany and France. Russia invaded Ukraine nearly 15 months ago. The UN is commemorating the mass displacement of Palestinians when Israel was founded 75 years ago. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more. What happened was that in 1947, the United Nations voted to partition Palestine into an Arab state and a Jewish state. And that sparked a war between Arab and Jewish forces. And by the end, the vast majority of Palestinian Arabs were permanently displaced from their homes. Uh, The Jewish state of Israel was established. It destroyed hundreds of Palestinian villages. And no Arab state was established. 
Israel's U.N. ambassador is denouncing the commemoration. The votes are still being counted in Turkey's presidential election. It could be headed to a runoff later this month. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Amherst Teachers Union wants an investigation into the leadership of the district's former superintendent. Michael Morris announced plans to step down Friday, citing health issues. Last week, a student newspaper detailed claims that middle school counselors failed to support LGBTQ plus students. School officials say a separate investigation is underway to determine if the students' rights were violated. The teachers' union also says the current assistant superintendent is unfit to take over. The son of former Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker faces charges of drunk driving. 29-year-old Andrew Baker was arrested for driving under the influence Saturday night in Linfield. He was released on personal recognizance and will be arraigned in Peabody District Court. Baker was accused of sexual assault on a flight in 2018, but that case was never prosecuted. The city of Boston is still trying to recruit thousands of teens and young adults for its summer jobs program. The program includes stints at government agencies and nonprofits. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more details. Participants as young as 14 can earn up to $17 per hour. Sharon Scott Chandler leads Action for Boston Community Development, or ABCD. Her organization is helping recruit for 1,700 open positions. She says a major goal of the SummerWorks program is to engage young people after an isolating pandemic. Another is to level the playing field. You know, whether you're from the city, the suburbs, you rich or poor, everyone should begin to get those skills as young as possible as teenagers. And folks without resources don't have those the type of ready access to opportunities. ABCD will host a youth job fair on May 22nd at Roxbury Community College. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters. Professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. The Celtics are advancing to the Eastern Conference Finals. The Seas defeated the Philadelphia 76ers at home last night by 24 points. They take on the Miami Heat on Wednesday. The Red Sox are looking for redemption after being swept by St. Louis during their last series. Yesterday's game in Fenway ended in an eight-run loss. They host the Seattle Mariners tonight. In your forecast, clear skies with highs in the upper 70s today. Tonight, some clouds move in and it falls to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, skies stay mostly clear and will have highs in the low 80s. Right now, it's 54 degrees in Boston at 734. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. In August 1945, the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan. 
The city was destroyed and more than 100,000 people were killed. This week, the person with the sole authority to launch America's nuclear weapons, President Joe Biden, will visit the city. He's there to attend the G7 summit. As NPR's Scott Detrow reports, the trip comes at a time of rising nuclear tension around the globe. On the 75th anniversary of the bombing in the middle of his presidential campaign, Biden wrote that Hiroshima reaches through history to remind us of the hideous damage nuclear weapons can inflict and our collective responsibility to ensure that such weapons are never again used. On Thursday, he arrives there as a man who holds that responsibility in his hands. Biden won't be the first sitting president to visit Hiroshima. That was Barack Obama. Hiroshima teaches this truth. Technological progress without an equivalent progress in human institutions can doom us. In 2016, Obama visited the city's peace memorial. John Wolfstall helped Obama plan that trip and worked on broader nuclear nonproliferation during the administration. He says Biden's upcoming trip isn't quite the same. Then Obama was making a clear decision to visit Hiroshima and confront what happened there. Biden, on the other hand, is coming to attend the G7, where he and other world leaders will discuss a wide range of topics. Still, Wolfstall says the trip will inevitably carry heavy symbolism. You have a sitting U.S. president, the man with control over the world's most powerful nuclear arsenal going to the first place where nuclear weapons were used. That has impact. That's especially true at a moment where nuclear tension is higher than at any point since the end of the Cold War. The invasion by Russia of Ukraine and nuclear threats to back it up, ongoing testing of missile capabilities by North Korea, the growth of China's arsenal. President Vladimir Putin and other top Russian officials have repeatedly threatened to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Biden has repeatedly responded. Russia would be making an incredibly serious mistake if we're to use a tactical nuclear weapon. Susan Burke says she's been shocked by Putin's nuclear blustering. Even in the coldest days of the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviets continued to carry on a very substantive dialogue on nonproliferation issues because they were mutually concerned about the threat of further proliferation. Burke worked on nuclear issues at the State Department for decades. Like other nuclear experts, she's been especially alarmed at how many times Putin has pointed to Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the fact that it was the U.S. who first used nuclear weapons against another nation. The fact that it was done once doesn't mean that it would be okay for someone to do it again. Burke has signed onto a letter urging Biden to take advantage of his visit to the site of the first nuclear attack and deliver a major speech on nuclear threats. Regardless of where and when it happens, John Wolfstall says Biden does need to lay out a clear policy and soon on how to de-escalate all the growing nuclear threats the world is facing. What is the policy that's going to tie these different pieces together on China, on Russia, on North Korea, on Iran, on our own nuclear arsenal? And how are we going to try to turn the tide, which I think most objective people would recognize has been very negative? A National Security Council spokesperson says Biden will, quote, pay his respects to the innocent who lost their lives and will, quote, reaffirm the U.S.'s commitment to nuclear nonproliferation. But the broader G7 agenda will remain the focus. Still, Biden is expected to begin the summit with a visit to Hiroshima's peace memorial alongside other G7 leaders. And they may also meet with survivors of the bombing. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Washington.
Two gun massacres that together killed 17 people and injured 21 earlier this month have led to mass demonstrations. Tens of thousands of protesters are demanding key government figures resign, and they're asking for bans on violent TV content. In response, the government started an amnesty program. More than 13,000 firearms and other weapons have been collected, including rocket launchers and explosives. We've reached journalist Igor Basic, news director for TVN1 in Belgrade. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So first, if you could explain this amnesty program, how does it work? The government uh, issue an open invitation to anyone who's got illegal weapon to give to the nearest police station. So um, no, uh, they, they give one kind of a deadline. It is 8th of June. Mm-hmm. So anyone who bring the weapon uh, and give to the police station, he can do that anonymously. That means that uh, they will not pick up any uh, data. They will not press any charges against those people. So it actually goes well on this situation because it's quite unusual shooting that we never had in Serbia. Uh, And uh, people try to use that opportunity to get rid of the, the guns they've got in their homes. So it's unbelievable what we saw yesterday in um, a place called Duvonište, and uh, we can see even the rocket launchers uh, that they are giving to the police. Now, the government has been under pressure to act since the two mass shootings. Serbia's education minister resigned a little over a week ago. There are calls for removal of the interior secretary. Is this government in trouble? I think it is, because so many people on the street that we saw on last Friday, we I think that we didn't see since the Milosevic crackdown. So it actually shows that the people are very, very nervous about this. They are angry and they want a, a reasonable response. Uh, Vucic wants to respond uh, with this kind of uh, measures like disarming, like changing and making uh, more policemen in the school than uh, uh, than it previously had. But people are not satisfied. They want to see a kind of resignation from a moral le- reason, at least, from the security agency uh, director and the interior minister. And they are not seeing it. So Vucic is now announcing elections and uh, because uh, he wants to stay on the power and he thinks that by dismissing this government, uh, maybe he can win again and uh, to put things in, in the normal like it was before this tragedy. Why is gun ownership so high in Serbia? Obviously, the Balkan Wars has a lot to do with that. Will this change people's relationship with guns? Well, maybe temporarily it can change, but uh, if you look at the numbers by small army survey they did, there is a million and a half illegal weapons in Serbia. Now we saw that only so far 13,500 bring it back to the police. So that means that uh, uh, any campaign like this cannot resolve the problem uh, with the weapons in Serbia. And people need to change their habits by education on media, uh, which they are not having it. Journalist Igor Basic, news director for TVN1 in Belgrade. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. 
Welcome to Monday on WBUR. Coming up at 745 on Morning Edition, Republican lawmakers in North Carolina are vowing to override Governor Roy Cooper's veto of a bill that would ban most abortions after 12 weeks. In your forecast, sunny and upper 70s today. Tonight, partly cloudy and mid-50s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and low 80s. On Wednesday, temperatures will fall back to the low 60s and it'll be mostly sunny. It's 54 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. A Littleton-based company that makes cooling technology for data centers is getting more than $1 million to advance its research. JetCool is the only Massachusetts company to receive the grant money from the Department of Energy. Data centers account for 2% of total U.S. energy consumption. 40% of that energy is used just for cooling the centers. Developers want to build a new apartment building at Chestnut Hill in Newton, 20% of the 244 units would be affordable housing. Some Newton residents tell the Boston Business Journal they're worried the building could increase traffic in the area. The Newton Zoning Board of Appeals plans to vote on the proposal next week. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Zoom. Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect, Zoom One. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. New abortion restrictions may soon become law in North Carolina. A bill banning most abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy was vetoed by Governor Roy Cooper over the weekend, but Republican legislative leaders have vowed to override the Democratic governor's veto. Joining us to talk about where things stand is Colin Campbell, Capitol Bureau Chief for member station WUNC. Good morning, Colin. Good morning, Layla. So the governor brought his veto stamp to a big weekend rally with abortion rights groups. What was the scene like there? So normally Governor Cooper vetoes bills more privately in his office, and then he sends us out a press release to announce his decision. This time he did the paperwork on stage in front of a cheering crowd at the state capitol. Cooper argues that the restrictions go beyond banning most abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy. They say this is a reasonable 12-week ban. It's not. The fine print requirements and restrictions will shut down clinics and make abortion completely unavailable to many women at any time. So the decision to have a rally is a clear sign that Democrats are looking to make these new abortion restrictions a big focus for next year's election here. Okay, so he clearly is coming out with a big message there. What's in this bill? 
So the bill includes some exceptions after 12 weeks in situations involving rape, fetal abnormalities, and where the life of the mother is in danger. Women seeking an abortion in the first trimester would have to jump through some additional hoops to have the procedure, and it increases licensing requirements and regulatory fees for abortion providers. Democrats say that abortion clinics could shut down or providers might choose to move to other states with less restrictive laws. It also requires more in-person doctor visits, even for medication abortions. And this could be a challenge for people in rural areas of the state who may need to take time off work or find childcare or transportation to the doctor. Now, this bill doesn't actually go as far as abortion restrictions in other states. Why did the GOP go with this 12-week limit in North Carolina? I think Republican legislative leaders here saw some of the backlash we've seen in other states mm-hmm. and decided they wanted to take a different approach. Here's GOP Senator Vicki Sawyer pushing back against criticism of the bill during a committee hearing. I am confident that this is the best piece of compromise mainstream legislation that we could put forward. I reject the fact, what I'm hearing today, that this is anti-woman and anti-democratic. Republican legislators here have a range of opinions about abortion. The ones from the more socially conservative districts pushed for a full ban, while more moderate suburban Republicans were worried about how that might affect them in next year's election. Ultimately, 12 weeks seemed to be what the Republicans thought would be the middle ground among their caucus. Of course, it's not at all a compromise with the Democrats. Also, in order to get more moderate Republicans to back the bill, they added in some other pretty widely popular family-related provisions like paid parental leave for teachers and state government workers. Now, despite the veto, this could become law in North Carolina. How soon could that happen? So the legislature will take a veto override vote as early as tomorrow. Republicans in the state have a veto-proof supermajority in both the House and the Senate. If the bill becomes law, most of the new restrictions will be taking effect on July 1st, but the battle won't end there. Uh, Democrats will be using this new law to rally support to flip seats in the legislature and keep the governor's mansion in Democratic hands in 2024. Colin Campbell covers politics in North Carolina for member station WUNC. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Layla. This is NPR News. You're starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in just a couple of minutes on Morning Edition, we hear from the author of a new book who argues that the West must change the way it understands China. And at 810, a runoff appears likely in the Turkish presidential elections. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, sourced in New England and focused on combining design with handmade craftsmanship. More about their sustainably crafted furniture at circlefurniture.com. And Evita at ART experienced the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera, Don't Keep Your Distance, starts Wednesday, amrep.org. Nina Jankowitz is an expert in the damaging effects of disinformation, so she took a job in the Department of Homeland Security to help fight disinformation. But then Fox News came for her. They said I had men with guns who would come and target people who said or thought things that I didn't like. Unhinged, a conspiracy theorist, insane, a useful idiot. 
That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will submit her proposed redistricting map today after a judge ruled that a map approved by the city council last year improperly relied on race as a factor. And U.S. Senate leaders plan to meet this week to discuss how to regulate artificial intelligence. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Museum of Science. There's always something new. Visit the latest traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games, and prepare to be amazed. Tickets at MOS.org. Upper 70s today under sunny skies. It falls to the mid-50s tonight. Low 80s tomorrow and partly overcast. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston at 751. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The writer and scholar K.U. Jin has a foot in each of two worlds. One is China and the other is the West. I grew up in Beijing, but I chose to go to the U.S. for high school as a Chinese exchange student when I was 14, and I live with an American family. And you ended up going to college in the United States as well, right? Yes, yes, that was my dream. She teaches now at the London School of Economics, and she has written a book about the economic development of her native country. The New China Playbook offers a different perspective than many Western policymakers do about China. In fact, she argues that Americans get a lot of things subtly wrong. Americans think about the overpowering bureaucracy of the communist state, which is true, but she maintains the state apparatus has often been very smart economically, And when it's not, entrepreneurs often push it to change. American business leaders complain of unfair competition in China. Jin sees that differently, too. There are lots of Western firms that have succeeded in all sectors, with the exception of the sensitive ones or the strategically important ones of the government where there's uh, restrictions on foreign investment. And there are losers in, as well. If we take the automotive industry and the mobile phone industry, I'd say that in many of these, at least consumer-oriented sectors, it's just about competition. Amazon didn't do so well, not because of discrimination, but because Alibaba is very powerful and it caters to the Chinese taste. Same thing with eBay, which it drove out. Uh, Apple did super well, and it continues to thrive. Of course, there are information-related companies like Google and Facebook that uh, has met with challenges, restrictions, outright bans, etc. And I'm not saying that there are no discriminations against foreign companies, but if we actually look at the data in China, the foreign companies actually get more subsidies than domestic companies. You write that Google chose not to comply with regulatory restrictions, and so their business has been severely restricted in China. Isn't it really, though, a clash of values? They weren't willing to accept Chinese censorship. Absolutely. And the clash of values will continue. The thing that we have to accept is that even if there is economic convergence with globalization, there has not been so much convergence of values or systems, political systems, as we've seen. The Chinese are still Chinese after they joined the WTO. Uh, The Chinese foreign students who have traveled abroad, ultimately, most of them decide to come back and return home and bring their knowledge or uh, carry out their innovation to create their relevant lifestyles in China. It's still local. The culture is local. And hence, this is where our clashes come from. Do you think China is certain to become the world's largest economy in the next decade or so? I don't know if this is a very meaningful concept because 
it could well be the largest economy simply because of its size, because of 1.3 billion people, not because it's rich. There's a fundamental difference between the two. I think if China rose 1.5% faster than the U.S., then almost certainly uh, in 10, 15 years, the Chinese economy will be the largest in the world. But is it going to be rich as the U.S.? Absolutely not. Is it going to have the most cutting-edge technologies, the greatest military power? None of this is measured by the size of the Chinese economy. You write something else that I hadn't thought about in quite this way before. One reason you say that China's economy has grown so much over the past few decades is that the individual worker is way more productive. Somebody who was working on a, a farm years ago is now working in a factory and is just producing more wealth. Can China keep increasing people's productivity in the future? This kind of growth is over. That defined the previous three decades of growth, of moving people from rural areas to urban areas, equipping them with good uh, tools and machines and capital, and they have become very productive. And because of that, they have been able to produce cheap goods for the whole world and because become the factory of the world. But that kind of growth has come to an end. So I think uh, China has entered a much more difficult economic growth phase. But that doesn't mean that there will be an economic collapse. It doesn't mean that China would be the Japan of the 1990s. It doesn't mean that China will have a lost decade. It's about coming to terms with slower but hopefully higher quality growth that's driven by sustainably high productivity and innovation. And that, of course, is a big if. But I'm not as pessimistic as many other observers are that China's economy is doomed, that it won't be able to realize that potential, maybe not even become the biggest economy the world. What, if anything, is the United States getting wrong in its policy approach to China in the last few years? I think that it's important to separate what are really national security concerns from what could be a great competitive collaboration model. You know, companies like Apple have really thrived thanks to the Chinese market, and China have thrived thanks to having Apple kind of products. If the world is talking about really embarking on a green transition, I just cannot imagine uh, uh, the lack of collaboration between these two uh, largest economies, especially as China has become the leader of renewable technologies. The policies, the restrictions on technology uh, make sure that it's very uh, narrowly focused, that it won't affect a huge swath of the economy. It would be very sad to decouple, technologically speaking, because it would hurt both countries in the world. And we're really talking about trillions of dollars at stake, which can do so much. The Biden administration at least talks the way that you do. They will say we want to block off national security dangers, but still compete in other areas and have a relationship. Are they getting the balance right or wrong? Well, is TikTok really a national security concern? Is reducing the number of visas granted to Chinese students wanting to study STEM in the U.S. really about national security concerns? Is watching Chinese professors contribute to the U.S. Uh, science and technology uh, a national security concern, including uh, reduced effort to collaborate between universities? I think now the danger is that this is so widespread and the sentiment is that you know, China is an adversary. It's something that's instilled in the younger generation is also very dangerous. I think if they can be politically opposite, economically competitive, and global public goods collaborative, this would be already a big step forward. And we want to think about small victories, not big wins, but small victories when we think about the two nations. 
Kei Yu Jin is the author of The New China Playbook Beyond Socialism and Capitalism. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Steve. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Sunny and upper 70s today, mid-50s tonight, then mostly sunny and low 80s tomorrow. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Turkey's presidential election appears to be headed for a runoff with incumbent Recep Tayyip Erdogan facing his toughest challenge in 20 years. It's Monday, May 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, voters in Thailand overwhelmingly backed opposition parties promising change, delivering a stunning rebuke to the military-backed government. Also this hour, for the first time, the UN will officially commemorate the mass displacement of Palestinians in 1948. Israel is calling the event anti-Semitic. And... Now that that has been lifted, the bottleneck is open. So there was a buildup, but it's not anywhere near how it was being reported. The expiration of pandemic immigration restrictions has not yet led to the chaos that was widely predicted. In sports, the Celtics keep their championship hopes alive. Sunny in upper 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden has hinted that he and top congressional leaders may meet tomorrow to again discuss the nation's debt ceiling. As NPR's Windsor Johnston reports, the president and Republican leaders sharply disagree over terms of lifting the federal government's borrowing limit. Talks continued through the weekend between congressional staff and White House aides in an effort to move the needle. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre cited some progress in discussions. The meetings have been productive and leaders wanted to continue before uh, they regrouped. The White House and congressional leaders are up against a critical deadline to avert a potential default. Republicans are refusing to raise the debt ceiling unless Democrats agree to big cuts in government spending, including major parts of President Biden's signature social services and climate change law. Democrats have flat out rejected that. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The Secretary of Homeland Security says U.S. Border Patrol agents have seen a 50 percent drop in the number of migrants crossing the border since last Thursday. That's when the Biden administration imposed new immigration restrictions. Migrants are being told to use a phone app to apply for an interview with U.S. officials. Javier Villalobos is the Republican mayor of the Texas border town, McAllen. 
He says he is also seeing a decline in the numbers of migrants attempting to cross the border. Fortunately, I think a lot of immigrants are heeding the advice and trying to do what they're supposed to do legally. So the numbers are not what uh, was initially predicted. The Biden administration is warning that if migrants enter the United States illegally, they're not allowed to follow the legal process for five years. After meeting the Pope and leaders in Rome, Berlin and Paris over the weekend, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is now in London to sit down with the British Prime Minister. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports Europe pledged continued support to Ukraine and awarded Zelensky its highest honor. France says it will send dozens more armored vehicles and light tanks. Germany pledged a $3 billion military aid package. And Britain will become the first country to supply Ukraine with long-range cruise missiles. European leaders also recognized Ukraine's heroic struggle by awarding Zelensky its coveted Charlemagne Prize, which recognizes work done in the service of European unification. European investment bank head Werner Hoyer presided over the ceremony Sunday. Were it not for the heroic attitude of Volodymyr Zelensky, the European Union would now share a very long border with Russia. Putin would have gained the opportunity to destabilize all of Europe. He said European leaders draw inspiration from Zelensky. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is submitting her proposed redistricting map to the city clerk this morning. As WBWAR's Walter Wuthman reports, a federal judge put a hold on the previous voting district map last week. Wu says the new map needs to be in place by the end of the month in order to hold the fall elections on time. We're on a pretty compressed window here. A federal judge blocked the old map, siding with opponents who argued it unfairly created districts based on race. Wu says her proposal is the best compromise. We really urge action and um, just wanted to put forward a map that I am prepared to sign as a starting point for discussion. Wu's map would unite Dorchester's Adams Village and Neponset neighborhoods, two areas that tend to lean whiter and more conservative than the rest of the city. The Council's Civil Rights Committee will take up the proposed map this afternoon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Cambridge City Councilors will consider a policy tonight to release the names of officers involved in fatal police shootings. The proposal would allow the city to release the names of officers involved in the January shooting death of Arif Saeed Faisal. Protesters have gathered at recent council meetings calling for the release of the information. The officer who shot Faisal is on paid administrative leave. Elected officials and local Jewish leaders launch a public awareness campaign today to combat rising anti-Semitism in the region. Combined Jewish Philanthropies of Greater Boston is leading the effort to highlight personal stories of locals impacted by such incidents. Mark Baker is the head of the organization. He says the campaign will also include steps the public can take to counter anti-Semitic attacks. They can speak up, they can step up, and they can stand up when they see incidents, behaviors, language that is uh, anti-Semitic, and they can make clear that they will not tolerate that uh, in their communities and that we will not tolerate that here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. According to the Anti-Defamation League of New England, reports of anti-Jewish incidents rose more than 40 percent between 2021 and 2022. The first federal public defender in Massachusetts has died. The Boston Globe reports Owen S. Walker died late last month following a fall at his Somerville home last winter. 
Walker was widely known for defending so-called shoe bomber Richard Reed. Reed tried and failed to detonate explosives on a plane in 2001. Walker was 79 years old. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. A huge Game 7 win is sending the Celtics back to the Eastern Conference Finals. The Seas beat the Philadelphia 76ers last night with a final score of 112-88. to The Red Sox were swept by the St. Louis Cardinals yesterday. The Sox host the Seattle Mariners at Fenway tonight. Sunny today with some gusty winds. Temperatures will rise to the upper 70s. Tonight, some clouds roll in and temperatures cool down to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and warmer. Expect a high around 82 degrees. It'll still be pretty windy. It's 56 degrees right now in Boston at 8.07. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include BritBox with the new season of Grace based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original mysteries, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Border crossings are down since the expiration of the pandemic-era border restriction known as Title 42. Here's Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on CNN yesterday. Over the past two days, the United States Border Patrol has experienced a 50% drop in the number of encounters versus what we were experiencing earlier in the week before Title 42 ended. U.S. officials have now reverted back to processing all migrants under Title VIII. The law carries penalties and expedited removals for those crossing the border unlawfully. The Biden administration is also requiring migrants to seek asylum in the nation they've crossed through first before they can ask for it in the U.S. So how will the changes affect America's immigration courts? To answer that, we're joined by Mimi Zankoff, who is the president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. Uh, Good morning. Now, despite the drop in crossings, thousands are still waiting near the border and there are Already 2 million pending immigration cases. Do you expect that backlog to get worse? Well, we can certainly predict that with any surge at the border, caseloads are definitely going to increase. And as you just mentioned, with those backlogs at an all-time high of over 2.1 million cases currently pending, it's only going to get worse. Um, Right now, the judges have about 3,500 cases that they have on their individual dockets at the 69 courts around the country. And we're really concerned whether we're going to be able to meet the expectations of the administration in resolving these cases expeditiously. When it comes to granting asylum, what are some of the factors that you consider when deciding that? Well, we look at whether the respondent who's appearing before us can present documents that establish that they would be persecuted in their home country if they were ordered removed. So in order to judge the extent to which they can meet their burden, we look at the types of documents that they submit, how they present testimony before the court, and the type of experts that they present to establish that it's objectively reasonable that they would be persecuted if they were returned. In, in those documents, I'm fascinated by this, uh, what do they typically show if they prove that there is a state uh, discrimination? Um, if they are trying to establish that they have, would suffer political persecution, they might 
present a, a card that shows that they've been a member of a political party. They might show documents to establish maybe in the newspaper that they um, attended a rally and that there was some sort of government persecution of their activities in that rally. If it's a religious-based persecution, they might show us our ba a baptismal certificate or some sort of religious certificate of some type or their attendance at religious ceremonies. And how long does that typically take to go over all the evidence? I'm trying to figure out exactly, case by case, how long each of those cases may last, typically. Some of them can be quite straightforward. Um, the trial itself, it might take a couple of hours to complete the cases. You may already know this, but the immigration judges are hearing cases day in and day out, usually three to four trials a day. So with 3,500 cases pending, we just don't get as much time as we'd like to be able to devote to each and every one of the cases. Do things move quicker when someone has a lawyer with them? Absolutely. As immigration judges, we always encourage the respondents to seek representation because, as you know, they don't have right, the right to free representation in immigration court. Fortunately, um, there are a lot of non-governmental organizations that are providing some assistance to them. And one of the most recent initiatives that the administration just um, came out with was something called the Council for Children Initiative, that in, in eight courts around the country, they're going to try to help children seek counsel. How often do you see attorneys with people? For the vast majority of the cases that I preside over in New York City, really pretty much almost everyone is represented. Oh. And if they don't have counsel on the day of their first or second hearing, if they can explain that they've been really trying to seek representation, um, if I have sufficient basis within which to grant a brief continuance, I will do so. But there is a, a limitation in the law as to how long we can um, continue to push a case you know, over to a new hearing while they're waiting to seek representation. And I know the administration has moved to add more immigration judges. Is that going to be enough? Or is, as you said, is this going to be one of those things where it's just, it's just too much to think that it's going to be expedited that quickly? It will always be a problem trying to meet 2.1 million cases because if you do the math on that, that's 3,500 cases That's assume, per judge. That's assuming we didn't even get any new cases coming through the door, which, as we know, will not be the case. <laughs> so we're very hopeful that the administration will be able to hire the judge teams that we need to help address the chronic staffing shortages. The older cases, is it going to go chronological? Are they going to be handled first in front of the newer ones? It'll, it'll depend on what the administration decides will be the priority, okay. and law enforcement priorities prevail. Thank you. Mimi Zankoff is the president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. Thank you very much. Thank you. Journalism. It should be free from government intimidation, corporate influence, and any partisan agenda. But should it also be free of journalists' personal beliefs? Yes, says A.G. Salzberger, the chairman and publisher of The New York Times. His essay posted this morning in the Columbia Journalism Review. And in an interview with NPR's David Folkenflik, Salzberger concedes his view puts him at odds with others in the profession and his own newsroom. A.G. Salzberger was born in 1980, just a year before the first millennials. They came of age as cable news and online sites pulled journalism toward opinion and advocacy. And he says he finds the pull jarring. This is something we hear often from inside our industry and outside it. You know, is it enough for journalists to describe the world as it is, or should they try to fix it? 
The stories that journalists cover are relentless, divisive, and often feel existential. Personal and political polarization at a 20-year high. But right now, they're in a battle against something else, a changing climate. Misinformation and conspiracy theories about COVID-19. Uh, Mr. Trump's first lie was told just seconds into the night. Salzberger says the Times should no longer let lies go by unnoted. When the facts are absolutely clear, they should be called out unequivocally and unapologetically. Polls show trust in the media to be low. The press has been accused of bias from the right for decades. Journalists of the past, as a result, bent over backwards to be perceived as fair. Over the past six years, the Me Too and social justice movements have sparked greater activist sentiment inside American newsrooms. Salzberger says the risk today is that journalists are embracing what he calls one-sidedism. Where journalists are demonstrating that they're on the side of the righteous. And I really think that that can create blind spots and echo chambers. Many journalists question whether more traditional approaches like Salzberger's can meet the moment. Wesley Lowry among them. Journalists are humans. We have biases, we have preferences, we have blind spots, we have experiences and we have deficit of experiences in some cases. Lowry is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who reports on issues of race and justice. Very often it's in that line of coverage that our news organizations send messages about what they think is important, what they think is urgent, what they think is controversial. It's how we show our biases and our values. What story we put on the front page, what story we order up a series on, what story we don't cover at all. Lowry praises Salzberger's efforts to diversify the Times' journalistic ranks and to think more deeply about its coverage. Yet, he says the Times' interest in sidestepping bias ends up crafting an identity and image to market it to deep-pocketed subscribers. The coverage of any issue has to be considered not just within the context of that piece itself, but how does that piece fit into a larger line of coverage and the message that is being sent by a news organization? As one example, Lowry points to articles questioning medical care given to teens who want to transition. A sizable group of journalists protested the stories, including some with past ties to The Times. The Times has defended those stories as rigorously reported efforts to explore vital and uncomfortable questions. Journalists also need to have humility that if you're following the facts wherever they lead, they often lead to a question. They often lead to uncertainty. They often lead to a debate. The Times got big stories wrong, Salzberger notes, when it presented matters as certain that weren't, like wrong reports that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction before the U.S.-led invasion, or the dismissal of the suggestion that COVID-19 leaked from a lab. Unlikely, but possible. Salzberger says he wants people to bring their lived experiences to the newsroom to inform their coverage. He just doesn't want those experiences to dictate how the news is defined. David Folkenflik, NPR News. Sharks are great swimmers, and a new study in the journal Science shows how one specific type might be mimicking humans. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more. The scalloped hammerhead shark lives in oceans all over the planet. It's one of the larger, but not the largest hammerhead species. That's Mark Royer, a shark researcher at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Scalloped hammerheads have a really unusual skill. They can dive to over 2,500 feet below the surface. At those depths, even the most sunny tropical oceans become dark and frigid. Imagine you're on a, a warm, sunny beach and you hop out of the warm water and then immediately plunge into an ice bath. It'd be unpleasant for a human, but it's potentially deadly for a shark. A shark can't generate its own body heat. If it gets too cold, it can't swim. And if it stops swimming, water doesn't flow across its gills. It can't breathe. It dies. So here's the question. How is it that a coastal, warm, tropical species 
is able to go down into these deep depths and survive. To find out, Royer and his colleagues went to a bay where the hammerheads swim. We do this all in a small 17-foot uh, Boston whaler, so it's almost like the size of a dinghy. And you don't think you need a bigger boat? We don't know. It's like the smaller the better because we want to uh, be able to lean over and get as close as possible. In order to attach a bunch of electronics to each shark's fin. This is essentially putting a Fitbit on the shark. When Royer and his colleagues later analyzed that sharky Fitbit data, what they found amazed them. The sharks dive, spend just a few minutes at the bottom, probably hunting squid. And then they pitch themselves at an 80-degree angle and then shoot towards the surface. But what's really wild is their body temperature doesn't drop. It stays steady until they start coming back from the deep. Royer quickly realized what was going on. They were uh, closing their gill slits and preventing that water from flowing across their gills that would cool their body down. They're holding their breath. The sharks are holding their breath. Yes, they're holding their breath. Remember, unlike humans, sharks use gills to breathe underwater. This is all about temperature. Passing cold water over the gills would cool the shark's blood, putting it in danger. It makes sense, Royer says, but he still can't quite believe it. After doing this study, it still um, shocks and baffles me. That a shark would need to hold its breath underwater. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in a couple minutes on Morning Edition, Israel is protesting as the U.N. for the first time officially marks the mass displacement of Palestinians in 1948. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. Nina Jankowitz is an expert in the damaging effects of disinformation, so she took a job in the Department of Homeland Security to help fight disinformation. But then Fox News came for her. They said I had men with guns who would come and target people who said or thought things that I didn't like. Unhinged, a conspiracy theorist, insane, a useful idiot. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny today with a high near 78, partly cloudy tonight with a low around 54. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and temperatures warm up to a high near 82. Mostly sunny and back down to the low 60s on Wednesday. It's 57 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. One nation's triumph became another people's catastrophe 75 years ago today. Israel was established as a homeland for Jews, and most of the Palestinians there were displaced. As NPR's Daniel Estrin reports, this is not just history for Palestinians today. A Palestinian family turns on some music, spreads open a blanket, and barbecues next to the ruins of their village that Israel destroyed many years ago. Several Palestinian families are here doing the same. Up a hill, 35-year-old Nael Abdurrahman picks a wild herb for tea. This is my home, actually. Why do you come here? To remember uh, our village. To remember our home. This longing is at the core of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In 1947, the UN voted to partition Palestine into an Arab state and a Jewish state. That sparked fighting between Arab and Jewish militias. Israel declared independence on May 15, 1948. Regional Arab armies invaded. Israel won the war the next year. By then, the vast majority of the Arabs there had fled or were expelled. Their homes were given to Jewish immigrants or were destroyed. Palestinians call it the Nakba, the catastrophe. And many of them call it an ongoing catastrophe. This family's village, Yalo, was destroyed by Israel not in 1948, but in the 1967 war, one of the last Palestinian villages entirely depopulated and destroyed. 45-year-old Reem Rub walks me down the nature trail that was her father's old village road. Wow, this is where your grandfather's house was? Yeah. There's a berry tree, there's a pomegranate tree next to her grandfather's old house. What's no longer here today is mapped out in her mind. She points. Here's the Abu Rub family home, the Abdurrahman family. Here's the mosque. Here's the village graveyard. Today, her extended family lives in a West Bank refugee camp. Many of them need a special Israeli permit to make this kind of visit to their old village. Today, it's a popular park with a forest planted over the ruins. She says her father's generation was scared after being expelled and had no confidence to fight for their rights. Today, she says the younger generation asks, why do I live in a crowded place in the West Bank when I have this land? She says, today, Israel is stronger than us. They have weapons. They have relations with countries around the world. But we have belief in God. She believes Palestinians will return to their destroyed villages and rebuild them. I asked Nael Abdurrahman. Do you actually think one day you will come back here? We hope that. His brother Muhammad says, the truth as we see it, it's hard or impossible to come back. But with God's help, we will. Israel says this is a red line. The return of Palestinian refugees would spell the end of the Jewish state. Israel even has a law that allows the government to penalize any organization that commemorates Israeli Independence Day as a day of mourning. As the displacement feels continuous for Palestinians, Israelis continue to wrestle with the history of the Nakba in new ways. These are called village files. Quite astonishing. 
Israeli historian Shai Chazkani wrote Dear Palestine, a book about the 1948 war. He took me to an Israeli archive and showed me a recently discovered trove of intelligence documents that Zionist forces compiled in the years leading up to Israel's founding. Hundreds of Palestinian villages, documented in meticulous detail, villages Israel later destroyed. There's been controversy recently about how to handle these kinds of documents. Israeli media have covered cases of defense officials removing documents from archives and classifying them, reportedly saying they could stir up unrest. I would say that what they're mostly concerned of is the actual remnants and story of Arab Palestine that is contained in these files, right? You know, that people would read them, that scholars would write histories that resurrect a civilization that once existed here and was essentially almost entirely destroyed. The heritage of that place is gone. Today, millions of Palestinians live stateless with the violence of an entrenched Israeli military occupation. Israel has had its most ultranationalist government in history, with far-right ministers who have called to erase a Palestinian village and campaigned to encourage Palestinians to leave. Some Palestinians say they fear a second Nakba and say their role is simply to stay put and prevent another historic displacement. It's haunting, this book. haunting to read. Another way the history of the Nakba stays alive is in books. 40-year-old Mahmoud Muna runs the educational bookshop in Jerusalem. His father-in-law lost his home when Israel was founded in 1948. On his bookshelves, Muna sees a new trend in what Palestinians are writing about today. Writings that's not necessarily about memory, but about political solutions. He says Palestinian thinkers are not exploring the two-state solution like they did 30 years ago. That's the compromise that the U.S. still supports, where Israelis keep the land they captured in 1948 and Palestinians get their own state in the territories Israel occupied in 1967. In the absence of that outcome, many Palestinian writers today are imagining a one-state future, together with Israelis. Muna says this will take mutual recognition of each other's histories. The Israelis need to acknowledge that they have responsibilities for the displacement of the Palestinian people and the killing and the creating the Palestinian refugee issue. And for the Palestinians, that we need to also acknowledge that the, the Jewish people have roots in this place and have reasons of belonging to this place. It's a very huge step from both sides, but I think it is essential to be taken. That's the future, he imagines. The present, he describes as injustice for Palestinians and what many Palestinians call a continuing catastrophe. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR on a Monday morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in five minutes, voters in Thailand turned out in record numbers to support opposition parties and reject the military-backed establishment that has ruled since a 2014 coup. It's 829. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering on Wednesday, May 17th at City Space for a panel conversation exploring how to approach anxiety productively. Tickets are at WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says he's thankful to British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the U.K. government for committing additional military aid to his country, including missiles and drones. You did a lot, you, your government and His Majesty, the King, and of course your people, your society, were very thankful from all our hearts from Ukrainians, from our soldiers, we are thankful. Zelensky was speaking earlier today in Britain after talks with Sunak. The trip follows Zelensky's visits to Germany, Italy, and France. That's where Kyiv also secured additional aid in its ongoing fight against Russia. Damaged homes, flooding, and several deaths are reported in western Myanmar and southern Bangladesh after Cyclone Mocha swept across the region. Torrential rains triggered flooding that led to the rescue of about a 1,000 people. In Bangladesh, the cyclone hit a large refugee camp housing Rohingya refugees from Myanmar. Regina de la Portilla is with the UN Refugee Agency. The storm hit the camps. It didn't hit as bad as we expected. We prepared for the worst, and we were lucky enough that it was not as bad as we had anticipated. De La Portilla was speaking to the BBC. Cyclone Mocha has since been downgraded after it came ashore with winds of 130 miles per hour. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chinoy. A coalition of voting and civil rights groups in Boston are calling on the city council to reject a newly proposed electoral map. Mayor Michelle Wu is expected to submit the redistricting proposal today. That comes after a federal judge threw out previously approved districts last week. The groups against the plan include the NAACP's Boston branch and Mass Vote. In a statement released today, they claim Wu's proposed map unnecessarily divides neighborhoods and leaves only one majority black district. The group claiming responsibility for a major cyber attack in Lowell says it's released data stolen from the city. The Boston Globe reports the group is believed to be based in Russia and calls itself Play. On social media, the group claimed to release sensitive city information and threatened to release more unless a ransom is paid. The attack last month impacted city laptops and phones. This week is Bike to Work Week in Massachusetts and across the country. Cyclists are being encouraged to bike to work instead of drive or take the train. Jess Slavin is with Mass Bikes, which is supporting bike events across the state this week. She says it's important to be safe if bike commuting is new to you. We always tell folks to check your bicycle ABCs, your air brakes and chain, and that's something you should be doing before every ride. But make sure especially do it before your bike commute. Slavin also recommends choosing less busy roads to ride on if you can. It's 833. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty on stage May 25th to June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Celtics are celebrating a 24-point victory against Philadelphia. Their win against the 76ers keeps their playoff hopes alive. The Seas face off against the Miami Heat on Wednesday. Meanwhile, the Red Sox are coming off a three-game loss. The team has a chance at redemption tonight as they host the Seattle Mariners. Clear skies with highs in the upper 70s today. Tonight, some clouds move in and it falls to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, skies stay mostly clear and we'll have highs in the low 80s. Right now, it's 57 degrees in Boston at 833. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. Voters in Thailand have delivered a stunning rebuke to the military-backed government there, voting overwhelmingly for opposition parties promising to bring change. NPR's Michael Sullivan reports from Bangkok. The progressive Move Forward Party ran on a platform its leader, Pitalim Jolonrat, called the three Ds, demilitarize, demonopolize, and decentralize. It also backed marriage equality and an end to military conscription, and voters enthusiastically endorsed that vision in yesterday's vote. 25-year-old Wichiraporn Tawi Manikot cast her vote here in Bangkok. I just want to see something new and something better, because now we need the new thing to bring us to the future. Move Forward also championed a more controversial call to amend the harsh Les Majestés law that prohibits criticism of the Thai monarchy. That law stipulates prison terms from 3 to 15 years if convicted. Hundreds have been charged under the law during anti-government protests in the past several years. The party's stance has drawn the ire of Thai royalists, but Move Forward leader Pita didn't back down on amending the law at a news conference late last night. We have enough MPs to push it forward already. It's not conditional. It's, it's already absolute that we're going forward with it. Pita also appeared to extend an olive branch to last night's other big winner, the opposition Thai Party, which finished second and could now work with Move Forward and others to create a coalition government. Thai's exiled supremo, the deposed Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawat, recently expressed his desire to return to Thailand after the election, despite his pariah status with the royalist military-backed establishment. Whether the return of Mr. Thaksin will destabilize Thailand political landscape. I think if it's a free and fair legal process, no one's going to induce more conflict. However, the opposite of that, if it's unfair, if it's unfree, if it's politically motivated, I think that could be a conflict. There's also a number of ways the establishment could deny the opposition a chance to form a government. A 250-member military-appointed Senate could vote against it in Parliament, And there are other tools at the establishment's disposal as well, 
including a court system that's brought down three opposition prime ministers and dissolved several parties, including Move Forward's predecessor, Future Forward, in 2020. Political analyst Titinangpung Sudarak of Bangkok's Chulalongkorn University says the threat of disillusion can't be discounted this time either. Something will happen most likely because how could the conservative royalist establishment put up with the kind of agenda that Move Forward offers and call for change and reform of the military and the monarchy? 21-year-old activist Tantawan Twatulanon, one of those charged under the Lay's Majesty law, worries about disillusion too and the threat of another coup by a military that's conducted two since 2006. But she says she's ready. I think for me and for my friends, there's no more fear anymore. If the coup happened, then we just go out from our home and then fight with them. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, Bangkok. Norfolk Southern Railway has removed a small mountain of soil laced with toxins since the February train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. What happens to the waste, like vinyl chloride, that hazmat teams collect? Reed Frazier with the Allegheny Front reports, some of it goes to a nearby incinerator with a history of problems. On a quiet street in the town of East Liverpool, Ohio, Amanda Kiger peers through a chain-link fence at a smokestack, about 150 feet tall, billowing out a plume of white vapor. See how short it is? The incinerator on the other side of the fence is separated from the neighborhood around it only by the small street we're standing in. There is an alley and then there's people's homes. It's not even a whole street, it's an alley. Kiger is executive director of River Valley Organizing, a local activist group. She's fought for years to tighten regulations on the incinerator. It's owned by an Indiana-based company called Heritage Thermal Services. In 2018, Heritage had to enter an agreement with the EPA to address nearly 200 violations. They include failing to control emissions for dioxins, a group of long-lasting carcinogens, and heavy metals like cadmium and lead. This is why Kiger's first response to hearing that the East Palestine waste would be coming to her hometown was, not here. It makes you feel sick when you're like, okay, not in my backyard. I'm gonna NIMBY this, you know, um, go give it to somebody else. Hazardous waste is incinerated all the time in the U.S. at over 100 facilities. But the East Palestine waste has become a political hot potato. Several states and cities rejected it, but East Liverpool officials didn't. The plant employs 180 people here. The Norfolk Southern waste, totaling more than 35,000 tons so far, presents a difficult problem, says Marco Castaldi, a chemical engineer at the City College of New York. Where are you going to put it? The, o- the only two options or into a landfill, or into a incinerator. Castaldi says a big concern with incinerating the waste is the vinyl chloride in the dirt could turn into dioxins. But if incinerated correctly, the toxins can largely be contained. Castaldi says incinerators are better than landfills because they reduce the amount of hazardous waste by burning chemicals at very high temperatures. Any molecule, if you heat it up enough, breaks apart into its elements. Heritage Thermal said in an email, it meets all federal requirements. Ohio regulators say the plant has so far processed over 2,000 tons of East Palestine waste without any violations. Still, the incinerator has been controversial ever since it was built in the 1990s over the protests of local activists like Alonzo Spencer. Years back, we used to have demonstrations. Uh, We've gone to jail. Spencer and others, including the actor Martin Sheen, 
protested plans to build the plant in this working-class neighborhood, where per capita income is about half the countywide average. Spencer, now 94, is worried about the Norfolk Southern Waste getting incinerated a few hundred feet from his house. We think our community is in jeopardy of our health. When I say community, I'm talking about the tri-state area. Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. That's because the plant sits close to where all three states meet. The residents of East Liverpool now hope Heritage does what it's supposed to and that East Palestine's waste doesn't become their problem too. For NPR News, I'm Reed Frazier in East Liverpool, Ohio. Some Kias and Hyundais are unusually easy to steal and thefts are spiking. That's putting pressure on the companies to do more to prevent thefts. That story coming up later on All Things Considered. Now to listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. Welcome to Monday on WBUR. Coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, the story of Mattress Mac, a Houston furniture salesman who used big bets on sporting events to draw publicity for his business. Sunny and upper 70s today, tonight partly cloudy and mid-50s, tomorrow mostly sunny and low 80s. On Wednesday, temperatures will fall back to the low 60s and it'll be mostly sunny. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 842. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Complex Stories. Working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. New Bedford-based Vineyard Wind plans to invest in technology that would protect marine mammals from underwater construction noise. The company is partnering with Thayer Mahan to test out something called a bubble curtain. Bubble curtains are made by laying hoses on the seafloor that are filled with compressed air. That air is released and creates bubbles. The technology will be tested off the coast of New Bedford. Raven Used Books in Harvard Square is moving after nearly two decades. The new shop will open in Shelburne Falls later this summer. This will be the shop's second western Massachusetts location. Another Raven Used Books is based in Northampton. It's 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at CertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C.
Hong Kong was once a city defined by a culture of mass protests, but that is changing. What we're seeing is that people are just voting with their feet. And for those who remain inside Hong Kong, you know, life just looks more and more constrained. Journalist Louisa Lim on how China is rewriting Hong Kong's history on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. While watching this year's Kentucky Derby, there was a moment that stuck with our colleague, Steve Inskeep. So there was this live shot from the betting windows, and the reporter said somebody back there was about to place a $1.2 million bet. The guy was Jim McInvale, and it was said he somehow used the bet to promote his business. He bet on Angel of Empire, which was the favorite, and he lost. So I had to call him. Mr. McInvale. What's up? Hey, it's Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Hey, Steve. Nice to talk to you. Uh, you were especially generous to come on, <laughs> given that you lost your bet that I want to ask you about. Hey, you know, Steve, you win some, you lose some, and sometimes you get rained out. You got to get up the next morning, put, put on your big girl, big boy, Richard, and go right back to work. <laughs> All right. Mr. McInvale's business is known as MattressMac.com. He's based in Houston. He bets on sporting events all the time. As a promotion, he stages mattress sales, offers customers a chance at a refund, and then places a bet on the favorite as a hedge. We refunded $76 million after the Astros won the World Series. Hmm. And then, of course, if the favorite loses, as happened in the case of the Kentucky Derby, you lost your $1.2 million, but you got to keep the money for all the mattresses. Correct. That's, that's how it works. Yes, sir. Nevertheless, doesn't it hurt just a little bit to lose a $1.2 million bet? It felt like a very swift kick in the gut, but after <laughs> about a couple of minutes, I got over it and put my uh, chin up, smiles on, and went on about my business. How did you get into sports betting? I went to Catholic elementary school, junior high, and high school, and these have bazaars and raffles all the time, so I I'm still a very devout practicing Catholic. I blame the church on getting me to gambling. <laughs> <laughs> then I uh, done numerous uh, Super Bowls, World Series, those type of things. It's all about making furniture buying more interesting for the customers. So it's a win-win for the community and a win-win for us. Do you ever bet when there's not furniture at stake? Very rarely. I, I, I have a, should I say, compulsive personality. Uh, 99% of the time is for promotional purposes. I want to clarify what you said, compulsive personality. Gambling, of course, can be addictive for a lot of people. You're saying you want to be careful with your gambling. Yep, and uh, I'm a compulsive worker. I work about 14 hours a day, seven days a week, so I know who I am, and I've been able to uh, to watch it. Gambling is fun. It's a great pastime for millions of Americans, but as you said, it certainly can be compulsive. Does gambling teach you anything about life? Resilience, resilience, resilience. Oh, meaning because you have to be ready to lose a lot. I firmly believe in my heart that a setback is just a setup for a comeback. So you're doing these bets to underline uh, as a promotion rather than to make a living or anything like that. But nevertheless, you're sitting there trying to pick a horse. What advice would you give to anybody else who's trying to pick a winning horse? Uh, pick one with kind of a long shot, five to ten to one, because you get a bigger return on investment. And pick up a, a horse race where there's eight or 10 or 12 horses in the race, yet the odds are much better there. And if you see a horse that reminds you of your uh, best friend's name or your favorite colors, bet on it because you'll probably win. <laughs>
You don't do any of that. You pick the favorite. You're telling people don't bet like I bet. Well, I had to pick the favorite because otherwise the customers would be upset if I picked the horse wearing red silk and he was five to one. Jim McInvale, also known as Mattress Mac, thanks so much. Great to be on the show. Y'all have a great day. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Coming up in the next few minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at whether foreign investors and businesses are returning to China now that it's declared victory over COVID-19. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at wbur.org cars. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The Boston City Council is set to consider new electoral maps after Mayor Michelle Wu submits her redistricting proposal today. New York City's mayor will reopen the famous Roosevelt Hotel as a housing and resource center for incoming migrants in the coming days. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in London today for a surprise visit with the country's prime minister. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. Upper 70s today under sunny skies. It falls to the mid-50s tonight, low 80s tomorrow, and partly overcast. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 851. The Pipeline of Companies That Run Pipelines. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Odoo, a full suite of integrated business management software dedicated to helping businesses of all sizes with billing, accounting, CRM, and e-commerce. Odoo.com. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Two oil and gas pipeline companies are merging, and the result will be one of the biggest energy pipeline operators in the country. The companies involved are not exactly household names. One Oak and Magellan Midstream. One Oak is buying Magellan for nearly $20 billion. And it's the latest in a growing list of mergers among companies focused on transporting fossil fuels. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. One Oak says its deal to purchase Magellan will create a $60 billion company. It will also create an energy transportation giant that is more diversified than either of the companies alone. One Oak is focused on natural gas pipelines. Magellan handles crude oil and refined oil products. The two together will have a large pipeline network bisecting the middle of the country. And it's not the only merger in the pipeline business. Earlier this month, Energy Transfer completed a merger with the smaller Lotus, also expanding its network. The bigger companies can more easily weather the ups and downs of the volatile energy market. As for One Oak, it's seen natural gas prices plummet since their peak last summer, down 75%. Oil prices have fallen too, but not as much. 
Meanwhile, the natural gas pipeline business has slowed in another way, interstate growth. According to a government report, last year saw the smallest addition of interstate pipeline capacity in nearly three decades. That's thanks in part to regulatory and financial hurdles. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. If you are listening to this whilst on your morning Peloton workout, well, you might want to double-check your seat post. After 13 reports of injuries, Peloton and the Consumer Product Safety Commission announced a voluntary recall for original Peloton model bikes. You don't actually need to return the whole bike. They just send you a new seat post. It is the third significant recall Peloton has issued since 2020, but the first since its new CEO took over last year. Marketplace's Matt Levin has more on why that timing may not be a coincidence. Recalls are not good for business. I know, shocker. And companies have some discretion on how quickly to issue them, thus the term voluntary recall. But issuing a recall too slowly also has its costs. Consumer Reports' William Wallace says Peloton may have learned that lesson. It does seem like Peloton is doing better than it did in 2021 when, frankly, it didn't seem like they were knowing they knew what they were doing at all. In 2021, Peloton's then-CEO, John Foley, apologized for not responding quickly enough to safety concerns about the company's treadmills. A new CEO took over last year. Indiana University Business School professor George Ball says his research shows the odds of a recall go up significantly when a new boss arrives. When you get a new CEO and they've experienced problems in the past, they're much more open to recalls the first couple years where they're really not culpable yet. In a statement, Peloton told Marketplace it hoped to be judged by how fast it managed the situation when they thought there might be an issue. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is up three-tenths of a percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all also up in the one to two-tenths percent range with the Dow future up 45 points. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine and More, where you can discover a new favorite Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for summer celebrations. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. And by Financially Inclined, a podcast from Marketplace is all about money lessons for living life your own way. Listen to Financially Inclined wherever you get your podcasts. China's government says it is open to foreign investors and businesses now that it has declared victory over COVID. But foreign businesses aren't quite so sure they're really welcome. Beijing recently launched a crackdown on consulting firms and companies that do due diligence for investors concerned they were compromising national security. For more, we've got Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack in Shanghai. Morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Sabri. So there have been a few signals that have made foreign businesses uneasy. The first one is this thing called exit bans, which means under certain circumstances, a business can't leave China. How does that work? Well, it's used against individuals. And in the past, it has been used against dissidents, lawyers, maybe their families. It's been used to threaten journalists, but also business people if they're involved in a civil dispute. And how has that changed over time? Well, there's a concern that exit bans are being used more and more under President Xi Jinping. Now, we don't have official statistics, but a new report by rights group Safeguard Defenders says the number of times exit bans were mentioned in China's official court database has gone up eightfold between 2016 and 2020. What's more, exit bans have now been rolled into a number of other laws, including the counter-espionage law. There have been 
raids on consultancy firms. And that's another thing that's alarmed foreign businesses. What have these raids been about and why is it an issue for business? Well, we don't have the exact details, but we know in some cases staff members were detained. Police have visited due diligence firms like Mince Group and consultancy firm Capvision, which connects clients to industry experts. It has headquarters in both Shanghai and New York, and it has also been investigated. You know, in a separate report, China's government broadcaster CCTV said certain Western countries have been increasingly trying to steal intelligence and information on China's military, its economy and the financial sector. Well, Beijing's also tried to limit the availability of just regular old financial data to foreign customers as well. Under the country's newish data regulation, China's biggest financial data provider, Wind Information, has restricted certain information access to users not in China. That's also happened to some academic databases. So what is the overall impact for foreign businesses, you think? Well, if China says this is about strengthening its national security, that's one thing. But what foreign executives are really worried about is the wording of these laws and these exit bans means that it's very broad and could turn everyday interactions into national security offenses. And they worry that more and more Chinese commercial information could become restricted as the U.S. and China continue to be rivals. So with less information, there's less confidence and with less confidence, then foreign businesses might not invest as much in China. All right. Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack, thank you so much. Thanks, Sabri. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Thanks for being with Morning Edition this morning on WBUR. We'll have a sunny Monday today in the upper 70s. Temperatures fall to the mid-50s tonight and some clouds move in. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny day in the low 80s. Very sorry, it's 58 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, popping up at the Seaport Summer Market the first three weekends in June from 11 to 7. You can kickstart summer reading with Porter Square Books, Boston Edition. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.